You're listening to audio from Queen City Church. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message will encourage you and offer practical steps for a relationship with God that keeps getting better and better. Today we are in week number two of a series that I'm loving, and it's a series called Sunday to Sunday, where we are taking a day-by-day look at the most important week in human history, which is known commonly as the Passion Week. And last week, we talked about what happened on the very first Sunday of the Passion Week, what's known as Palm Sunday, and we talked about the triumphal entry. And today, if you are taking notes, which I hope you are, we're gonna be talking about what happened on the next day. We're gonna be talking about Monday. And what happened on Monday of the Passion Week can be found in three out of the four Gospels, which are the four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And what happened on Monday can be found in three out of the four in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And today, we're gonna take a look at Mark's account, okay? So we're gonna look at the book of Mark, what happened on Monday. In Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12, it says, the next morning. So that's what triggers Monday. So the next morning on Monday, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs, but there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. So that fig tree did not have any figs on it. And here was Jesus' reaction in verse 14. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. By the way, in the margin of my Bible, I wrote, hangry Jesus. (laughs) Because right there, Jesus is a little hangry. I mean, he's hangry right there. Um, And then he goes on to say in verse 15, still on Monday, It says, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, hangry Jesus entered the temple, and then he turns it all the way up to 10 and began to drive out the people, buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. We're actually gonna come back to that verse at the very end of the message. And then in verse 17, it says, he said to them, the scriptures declare, and then he references right here, two different Old Testament verses. He says, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And that's actually him quoting Isaiah chapter 56, verse seven. But you have turned it into a den of thieves, quoting Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 11. And let me push pause right here before we finish what happened on that day. And let me point out something that I believe is very important. It really doesn't have to do with the meat of the message, but I do think it's worth observing right here. And let me just ask this, how many of you by show of hands would would agree that Jesus was the perfect son of God who never sinned. How many of you would agree with that statement? I know that I would. By the way, this is why he's the only person in human history that's actually qualified to pay for your sin because we can answer that question that way. And so he is the perfect son of God who never sinned. But how many of you by show of hands would agree that Jesus 
here in these verses that we just read was angry. How many of you would, would agree with that? There's not as much confidence in that one. There's a little bit more T-Rex arms instead of the full extension on that one. And it's like, is he, was he do that? Yes, there's no doubt when you read through that, that he was angry. Now, here's what that tells me. And I think this is very important. I think this tells me that being angry is not a sin. Because listen, anger is an emotion. And God created us in his image and part of his image, including emotions. So it is not a sin to feel an emotion that God gave us. Now, let's be very clear. What we do when we are angry can be sin. But anger in and of itself is not sin. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, in your anger, do not sin. See, this verse and Jesus's example in Mark chapter 11 shows us that it is possible to get angry and not sin. And let me tell you, I'm so passionate about this because of experiences that I've had in the past. In fact, when I was in elementary school, I was forced to go to a school counselor because I had what the teachers would call an anger problem. And I was, literally, I was forced in elementary school to go meet with a school counselor to talk about anger. And let me tell you what the main message was that I took away as an elementary school kid was that being angry was wrong. That was the message that I felt was drilled into me at a young age that carried way over into adulthood. But the truth is, that is not true. I did not have an anger problem. I had a temper problem. And that's a very big difference between those two things, okay? So I just wanna make sure that we notice right here the perfect son of God who never sinned got angry, okay? Unpause, let's jump back into Monday. In verse 18, here's how Monday finishes. It says, when the leading priest and the teachers of religious law, so all the church leaders, when they heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him even more than what happened the day before. Let me put it this way. We talked about the triumphal entry set into motion, the fact that they were on the way to be able to move up the the execution of being able to arrest and to kill Jesus. And so if the triumphal entry started the fire, the clearing of the temple on Monday poured gasoline on that fire. But they were, it says, the Bible says, but they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. And that evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city in the scene of Monday. That's what happened on Monday of the Passion Week. So here's the big question that I have when I'm reading through these two different things, this cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple. These are the two things the Bible says I want you to see what happens on this very important week that Jesus did. And here's my question. Why was Jesus so fired up? Like specifically, why was Jesus so fired up as soon as the day started? Like, did he just wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Like, why was he so bothered and so upset right from the jump? Because the very first thing he does 
is that he curses the fig tree for having no figs. Then he rolls into the temple, immediately clears it out, turns over the tables, and then declares that they turned a house of prayer for all nations into a den of thieves. Now, this wasn't normal Jesus. This was not normal, peaceful Jesus. This wasn't preacher Jesus. This wasn't rabbi teacher Jesus. This wasn't, I'm about to do some miracles, Jesus. I'm going to heal somebody, Jesus. Walk on water, Jesus. Feed thousands of people from a happy meal, Jesus. This on Monday? No, this was spicy, Jesus. Jesus was spicy on Monday. This was fired up, Jesus. This was passionate, Jesus. This was aggressive, Jesus. This was, I'm not messing around, Jesus, but why? Why on this day was he so fired up? I love the Bible because the Bible actually gives us insight on why he did what he did on this day. In fact, let me show you what happened on Sunday that directly affected what happened on Monday. Because the last thing in Mark's account of Sunday is Mark chapter 11, verse 11, one verse before we started, which was Monday. This is right after the triumphal entry, and it's what we studied last week. If you missed that message, go back and listen to it. It's right after that. And here's what verse 11 says. So Jesus came to Jerusalem after the triumphal entry, and he went into the temple. Don't miss this important detail. It says, after looking around carefully, at everything, taking it all in, he left because it was late in the afternoon. I want you to notice that he saw everything on Sunday. But because it was a little bit later, he chose, I'm not going to address this right now. It says that he remained silent. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. See, I think this verse actually helps us understand why things went down the way they went down the next day. Because if you think about it, this verse clearly says that Jesus saw with his own eyes what was going down at the temple late on Sunday. And in my humble, personal, theological opinion, I think he spent all night chewing on what he saw in the temple. I think it was just ruminating in his mind that he couldn't stop thinking about it. And I believe that's why he started Monday with such an obvious heavy heart. It's why he was so burdened right from the jump. It's why he was so full of conviction and passion because he knew that he knew that he knew that on that day he had to do something about what he saw the day before. He couldn't let it go another day. He couldn't wait another day. He knew, I am so burdened, I have got to do something about this. See, I think he experienced what David wrote in Psalm 69 verse nine where it says, passion for your house has consumed me. I think this is why he did what he did on Monday. Because it, it wasn't just anger, it was passion. Like passion for the house of God. It consumed him and he knew he had to do something about it. But if I could go just a little bit further, I think there's something more 
even a little bit deeper that's happening behind the scenes. More than Jesus just responding and reacting to what he saw on Sunday, I think what happens on Monday points to one of Jesus's, it's a term that I call a holy discontent. See, I think that what happened on Monday, it points to one of Jesus's holy discontent. And here's my simplest definition of a holy discontent. It is a divine burden that's given to you by God. That's what it is. It's a divine burden. It's from him that is given to you. It's a divine burden. In other words, it's something given to you from God that fires you up. It's something you're passionate about. It's something that you can't shake even if you wanted to. It's something that makes you say, I just can't sit by anymore and watch this keep happening. Somebody has to do something about this and it might as well be me. I have to do something about this. Some, theolo some theologians actually call this a righteous indignation. I call it your Popeye moment. Come on, how many of you have ever seen the old school cartoon of Popeye? Anybody? And like, if you've never seen it, which maybe you've never seen it, it's super old school, okay? Some of you maybe have never seen this guy with weirdly shaped arms. This is really weird. No bicep, just all the forearms in the world, okay? But the story, it has the same story. Every single one is the same story. There's drama that happens, and his girl, Olive Oil, gets in trouble, and somebody needs to save him. And every single episode, Popeye says this. He says, I've had all I can stands, and I can't stands no more. And then he pops that spinach, eats it. It gives him all those weird-looking muscles, and then he goes and saves the day. It's his holy discontent. And listen, listen, we all have them. Every single one of us have at least one holy discontent. Like we've all... We all have a divine burden that's given to us by God. And I'm telling you, as your pastor, it is so important for you to recognize and to articulate and to understand what your divine burden is. And here's why. Because your divine burden often reveals your divine direction. In other words, that your holy discontent is often god flashing a neon light in your life, telling you what you should do. So for me, I have a holy discontent. My holy discontent started almost 10 years ago in Dallas, Texas on a random Tuesday in my quiet time, which is what I call just my personal time with God that I spend every single day reading his word, just talking to him. It's really one of the highlights of my day. And on this random Tuesday, Almost 10 years ago, God spoke to me about planting a brand new church. The way that he told it to me was that I put inside of you a unique expression of a church. My wife does not like this, but the best way that I can explain it is that I felt like I got pregnant. I could not wish it away. I could not ignore it. And over time, it just kept getting bigger. You know what I'm saying? And it's like in that moment, that's what God did. And after a long process... God put Cincinnati, Ohio on our radar. And the more that we discovered and the more that, that we research, man, we found that Cincinnati is a beautiful city. I'm not from here, 
My wife's not from here. We've never done ministry here. But the more God highlighted this city and the more we study, the more we researched, the more we vacationed here, the more that we found that Cincinnati is a beautiful city that's filled with amazing people. Just look around this room. Amazing people, beautiful art, an amazing culture, and come on, some great food, phenomenal food. Come on, it's where the chili goes on the noodles. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? God's good. It's a beautiful city. There's nowhere on planet Earth like our city. I love it. It's beautiful. But we also discovered in that process that Cincinnati, as beautiful as it was, was also a broken city. In fact, in 2017, in this whole church planning process, we bought a Barna research study that was a very detailed study of the city. And in 2017, we saw heartbreaking stats like one out of three people in our city live in poverty. But if you do a deep dive into the actual like demographics, you'll see that 45% of children live in poverty, one of the highest in the country, and a crime rate three times that the national average. You see a heroin addiction epidemic with many resulting in overdosing. We saw that Cincinnati was the fifth most segregated city in the United States. Very diverse city, but very segregated. And then we started seeing the spiritual stats of the city, that 34% of our population were unchurched. They were lost, far from God. But then when you started studying the specific age ranges, we saw that 52% of people under 40 were unchurched and far from God. And when we learned all of this, when we discovered all of this, I want you to know that God did something inside of us. Like for one, it broke our hearts. Like, because I don't know if you can look at that stuff and just walk away the same. Because here's what, I, here's what we have to understand, just as much as when I saw it in 2017, is that those aren't just stats, those are people. Like, those are people. Those are people in our city. And so, it, for one, it broke our hearts, but it did something else. It also stiffened up our spines. It got to the point where it's like, we have to to do something about this. We can't do everything, but God knows that we can do something. And so we moved here in faith, knowing one family in January, 2018. And then nine months later on September 16, 2018, over five years ago, we started our church. And let me just tell you, I have decided, and the conviction is just as strong today as it was on launch Sunday, that I can tell you with full integrity in my heart, the holy discontent and the passion is still there even more than it was on that day. And I'm gonna love and serve this city until the day I die. That as long as I have, as long as I have breath in my lungs, as long as my heart is beating, I'm gonna do whatever I can do to help as many people in our city experience a real, vibrant, daily, life-changing relationship with God that just gets better and better. I'm committed to it. Listen, here's what I want you to see is that our church started from a holy discontent. 
We all have a holy discontent. We all have a divine burden that is given to us by God. I do, you do, and listen, Jesus did too. So what was Jesus's holy discontent that was on full display in Mark chapter 11? Now, after studying the life of Jesus and specifically what happened on this Monday, I think both things, both the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple actually point to the same exact holy discontent. Here it is. I think that one of Jesus's holy discontents was something looking one way on the outside, but being different on the inside. I think we see this here on this Monday that it fired him up when he saw something was one way on the outside, but was different on the inside. And let's call it what it really is, hypocrisy. One of Jesus's holy discontents was hypocrisy. In fact, the very next day, what happened on Tuesday, he says to a group of religious leaders, talk about pouring gasoline on something, get ready, buckle up for this one. Because in Matthew chapter 23, here's what Jesus says to a bunch of religious leaders in verse 25. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees. And then he calls them a strong name. He says, hypocrites. And in fact, if you read through Matthew chapter 23, he calls them this, this name six different times. But in the original Greek, it's really important for you to know what that word means. Because one of the ways to translate, it's the same word, get this, for actor. Like an actor or actress, it's the same exact word. He's calling them an actor. It's like, it's where you are playing a part. You're playing a role that isn't really you. And he says, you're an actor, you're a hypocrite for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, you can't see this. First, wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. See, Jesus says, guys, you are one way on the outside, but you're different on the inside. You're one way in public, but you're a totally different way in private. And I'm telling you, every time Jesus saw something that was one way on the outside, but was different on the inside, it fired him up. Let me say it this way. Anytime he saw something that had the appearance of life, but in reality was fruitless, it fired him up. We see it. Think about it. That's exactly what happened on this Monday. That's exactly what happened in Mark chapter 11. Start with the fig tree. Because the fig tree, it says that it showed signs of life. But when he got up close to it, it didn't have any fruit. And then think about the temple. Think about when he walked in. The temple looked full. It looked alive. It looked vibrant. It looked busy. But if you looked closely, it really was spiritually fruitless. And here's why that one is so important. Because when he's talking about the temple, 
it means something different to us today than it does then. And here's why. Because after the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus, instead of the temple being a building, the Bible actually tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, that we are the temple of the living God. So when you look around this room, you're not just seeing people. You're seeing what God would say, you're the temple, that you are the temple. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19 says it this way, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you, who lives in you and was given to you by God. Listen, God doesn't live anymore in man-made temples. No, Jesus changed the game. And now God lives in us. We are the temple. And just like Jesus on that Monday didn't want his temple to look alive on the outside but be fruitless on the inside today, he still doesn't want his temple. He doesn't want you to look alive on the outside and be fruitless on the inside. He doesn't want you to just put on a church mask and act like everything is awesome around other people, but inside be a dumpster fire where everything is crumbling. That's not what he wants for your life. He doesn't want you to wear a mask where it looks like you have peace, but inside you have no peace. That's what he's saying here. It's a holy discontent. So here's what I wanna do. Just as a leader and a pastor in your life, I wanna give you three practical questions after what we just read on Monday for you to think about and to process over the next few days. Now, we don't have time to really dive deep into it, but I want you to write them down and I want you to take some time just to process you and God these three questions. Here's the first one. The first question I want you practically is, does your outside reflect what's really going on in your inside? I think that's very important from this Monday for us to process this. Does your outside reflect what's really going on in your inside? Maybe another way to ask it is, are you one way on the outside, but different on the inside? Are you one way in public, but another way in private? Are you one way at church, but another at home, at your job, or on Friday night? Are you being an actor? Are you playing a role? Are you playing a part that really isn't you on the inside? Does your outside reflect what's really going on in your inside? Here's the second question I want you to process. Is your life producing fruit? Practically, look yourself in the spiritual mirror and ask, is my life producing any fruit right now? Galatians chapter five, verse 22 and 23 is a very famous two verses that talks about the fruit of the spirit. And here's what it says. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here's my very simple, very practical question. Does your life look like that right now? Does your life on the inside and the outside, does it look like these two verses in Galatians chapter five? Like, is the Holy Spirit that lives on the inside of you producing that type of fruit in your life? Does your life look like love, 
and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And if, and, if and if I gave you true serum and your answer was no, my life does not look like that. I am not peaceful. I have no patience. Right now, I have no self-control. I'm literally owned by my desires and my thoughts. Like, there, there's nothing that is gentle about my life right now. Like, if you would say, my life does not look like that, Pastor Brian, I've got really good news for you. Because if your life is not bearing fruit, if your life does not look like that, Jesus makes it crystal clear in John chapter 15 how to change that. So if you want to change that, listen to what Jesus says in John 15, verse five. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me, in other words, those who are connected to me and I in them will produce much fruit. Look me in the eyes. I want you to see that producing more fruit has nothing to do with you trying harder. I want you to see that if you're struggling to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life, the answer is not you just working harder and trying to be more peaceful and trying to be more loving and just, I'm just gonna try harder this week. That's not what it says. Jesus doesn't say try harder. He says, stay connected to me. Remain in me. And listen to what he says here at the end. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus says, very clear, if you want to be more fruitful, if you need more fruit in your life, remain in me, stay connected to me, stay in close relationship with me, and the result of that will be fruit. So second question, is your life producing fruit? Number three, last question, practical, that I want you to process. Number three, does Jesus need to clear anything out of your temple. Remember, the temple is not any more brick and mortar, that you and I are the temple. So the question is, does Jesus need to clear anything out of your temple, out of your life? Is there anything in your life that's behind the scenes that needs to be out of your life? Because if your life isn't producing fruit, Jesus just may need to clear something out of your life so that fruit can be in your life. Maybe he needs to clear out a toxic relationship that's in your life right now. Maybe he needs to clear out unhealthy habits or unhealthy ways of thinking. Maybe he needs to clear out a destructive sin or an, addic or an addiction. Maybe he needs to clear out undealt with hurt and pain or unresolved bitterness and offense and unforgiveness. Maybe he needs to clear out chronic worry or your obsession to always need to be in control. Does Jesus need to clear anything out of your temple? These are just three very practical questions that I want you to take some time this week to really process. And don't just answer yes or no, ask why or why not. And maybe another great way to process this is in your life group. And maybe you haven't jumped in one yet. You can jump in our life groups anytime. But this week, our life groups will sit there and talk about this even deeper and further in a smaller setting. And so maybe you wanna do that as well. Those are the questions I want you to ask this week. 
Now, before we respond, I do wanna look at one more detail in this story that really got my attention this week. It's something I've actually never seen before in this story. I, man, I have read what happened on this Monday so many times, but there was something that I learned. There's a detail that jumped out that I've never seen before. And by the way, that's because God's word is alive and it's active. This is the only book that's breathing. That means you can read it over and over and over again and get new things almost every time. You know why? Because it's alive. It'll speak to any area of your life in every season of your life because it's alive. And this week, the alive word of God, I was able to see something I've never seen before. And it's verse 16 of Mark chapter 11. It says that when Jesus was clearing the temple, it says, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. Now, when I studied the original language, I found that this isn't the best translation of the original Greek language. So I want you to see the same verse in the NIV translation, which is a very like more literal translation. Here's what it says. It says, same verse. And Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. I, I know. But here, here's what you gotta get to understand this. To understand this, you need to understand that the temple was absolutely humongous. Most scholars believe that it was 170,000 square yards. And I did the math. That is 1,530,000 square feet. That's a big old building. Just, just, just by comparison, a, the average Walmart is 182,000 square feet. So according to that math, the temple was about eight and a half Walmarts. Huge building, huge building that was right in the middle of the city. So think about this, this massive building right in the middle of the city, that's the size of eight and a half Walmarts. So to go from one side of the city to the other side of the city, you really only had two options at that time. You could go around the temple, that big old temple. You could either go around it or you could go through the temple. In other words, there was a shortcut through the temple. And Jesus right here in verse 16 says, I'm shutting that down right now. He goes, people are using the temple as a, as a shortcut no more. And he makes it clear. No more shortcuts. That's what he makes. He says, hey, no more shortcuts. And when I started thinking about that phrase, it's like God spoke to me so clearly this week as I was praying and I was preparing to share a message with you. And by the way, I think one of my biggest responsibilities is just simply to tell in public what God tells me in private. I feel like that's a big part of my responsibility. And so 
I want to share something that I think God put on my heart that I think it's more of like a prophetic word to some people here right now. This is a little bit different than how I would normally end a message. This may be pretty strong. This may be, maybe, I hope it encourages you, but it may not be the most encouraging thing. But when I saw this in the scripture, I felt so challenged by God to prophetically speak to some of you that are either here or watching online, that maybe right now in your life, you're trying to take a shortcut in some area of your life. And maybe what that looks like is that you're trying to control a situation that you cannot control, but you're trying. Or maybe it looks like there's a process, but you're trying to expedite the process. You're trying to cut corners. You're trying to skip some steps. You're trying to take a shortcut. Maybe that's in your spiritual life. Maybe that's in your relationship with God. Maybe it's in your relationships, your friendships, your marriage, your parenting, with your children. Maybe it's with dating. Maybe you're trying to take a shortcut in your, in your health, your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health. Maybe you're trying to take a shortcut in your career or at your job or in your business or with the influence that God has given you. Or maybe you're even trying to take a shortcut in the dreams that God's put in your heart, the goals, the desires of your heart. And if that's you, with a smile on my face, and I love you so much that I'll tell you the truth. I believe that Jesus is here and he's saying the same exact thing as he did on that Monday in Mark chapter 11. I think he's saying to you, no more shortcuts. I want you to take my way, not your way. Even if your way is longer than what you desire or what you want. Because I'm gonna actually do something in you through the process and develop the character that you need to go where you're wanting to go. And if you take a shortcut, what you want has the potential to actually crush you if you get it too early. So I think Jesus is here saying, will you please trust me in my ways and my timing? No more shortcuts. So if you're here today and you've been taking some shortcut or you've been tempted to take a shortcut, which let's be honest, includes all of us from time to time. I wanna encourage you with one more scripture that I believe is one of the most encouraging scriptures in the entire Bible. Galatians chapter six, nine. If you've been tempted to take a shortcut, hear this straight from God. He says, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. Let's not get tired of doing things God's way. Let's not get tired of doing things God's way in God's timing. At just the right time, we will, not we might, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we do not give up. Let me say it this way. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't take it. 
If there is anything in your life that we can pray for, please visit queencitypeople.com slash prayer. For the latest updates on our church, follow us on social media at Queen City People or visit queencitypeople.com.